Well, hello and welcome back to the Tim Masso podcast. I'm glad to have you with me. It's been a little while, so we should catch up on some popular misconceptions that seem to be perennial in the watch industry. So by that, I mean, let's bust some myths, starting with the myth of depreciation. Now, I can't tell you how many times a collector has come up to me proposing to purchase a five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten year old watch asking me if it's going to depreciate. And I smack my forehead because this is probably the single biggest misconception that is made by watch collectors. This idea that watches behave like cars on the market. Okay, important to note that cars for the most part, though often compared to watches, will basically depreciate until they reach scrap value. So a car is new, it's driven off the lot, and well, maybe in past times, lately it seemed like the world is upside down, but the convention has always been that a car would lose about 25 to 30% of its value the moment you drive it off the dealer's lot. So that would always be the first depreciation hit that a car would take. Over the years, a combination of mileage, age, visible wear and tear, and expiration of warranty would downwardly adjust the value of that car. As the car gets older, new generations of the model, let's say it's a Ford Explorer SUV, new generations of the model will arrive, and that will have a further downward effect on the value of the vehicle. As the vehicle gets older, visible wear and tear, paint degradation, dirt in the interior, factors such as a lack of an established maintenance, like if you haven't taken the car in frequently, uh, a buyer might dock you some value if you haven't regularly maintained the car. A full book of maintenance generally helps resale value. But after 10 years, 15 years, a car is substantially depreciated. And typically between 15 years and 20 years, a car is going to depreciate to basically a pre-owned wholesale value, which is essentially one step away from the junkyard. It's what a used car dealer would accept for a car that he can't actually sell to a customer. And then from there, the car is generally scrapped for the value of the raw materials, or it's parted out and the parts are shipped out to be sold individually as replacement parts, for example, of the car, uh, for examples of the car that are still in service. Now, this is very different from how a watch ages. We've seen that whole life cycle of an automobile from brand new on the showroom floor to scrap metal. This generally isn't how watches end up. Now, it is true that most watches, when carried out of the dealer, will immediately lose a chunk of value. It might be 5%, 10%, it could be 25%, depending on the strength of the underlying brand. But after a point, after the watch is no longer under warranty, after the initial depreciation hit, after a succeeding new and improved model comes out, a used watch is gonna stabilize at a certain value. These are not items that are generally harvested for their, their scrap materials. Uh, they're generally not parted out to be sold piecemeal for repair services. 
if you have something like a Omega Planet Ocean that you bought back in 2010, overwhelmingly a watch fitting that description, whether it's an Omega or a Breitling or an Hublot, it's going to reach a floor of value, a point beyond which it's not going to really lose anymore. It might even gain a little bit to keep pace with inflation. But let's say it just stabilizes. That's fundamentally different from how almost every non-collector car operates on the market. And even cars right now that are being marked up ridiculously, Ford Broncos that sell for $55,000 that are being sold for hundred grand out of dealers, Kia Tellurides that retail for $40,000 well-equipped that are being sold for $50,000, someday those cars, as desirable as they are now, will be worth their scrap value. Whereas just about any watch is going to be worth something approaching 50 to 60% of its original retail value. And that's not really going to change. So whether you're looking at a Glasuta Original, a Piaget, a Parmigiani, even the watches that depreciate the worst, and those are some of them, eventually it is going to reach a set point beyond which it will not lose any more value. And that brings me back to the collector's original question, which is, is this watch I'm buying going to depreciate? Well, whoever bought a Parmigiani Pantograph new took a monstrous bath on that watch. But if that watch is now eight years old and you're buying it used, check the market, see how the other ones are priced. If you're paying market price for that watch, no, it's not going to depreciate. Now, there are some things to take into account, one of which is service. Almost any watch that had an original retail value in the five-figure range is going to cost you at least $1,000 to service. And if it's a high horology, low-volume brand, it's probably going to cost you two, even $3,000 to service. So if the watch you're looking at hasn't been serviced, you need to take that into account. A lack of service documentation with a watch should be regarded as seriously as a lack of service documentation on a collector car like a Lotus or an Alfa Romeo. These vehicles are sensitive to service. These are not Toyotas. These are not Hondas. Things go wrong and expensively wrong if you don't take care of them. So remember, when buying an older used watch, check for a service history. And if it doesn't have it, that could cause the price that you pay to be lower. But remember, it will regain a lot of that value once you service it and you have a one to two year service warranty in place on the watch. Now, another factor to keep in mind is that there is a difference between wholesale and retail, even for used watches. So a lot of times, you know, here at Watchbox, someone will call us up and they'll ask, you know, what what will you pay me for my 45.5 millimeter 2013 Planet Ocean? And, you know, the price might be $2,500 or $3,000. And they'll say, but this is a watch that sells for $5,000. I want $5,000. Well, if you sell your watch privately, you will get the retail price. You will get the market price. But if you're selling the watch to someone who needs to sell it again to make a profit, you need to expect that they're going to pay you less than the market value of the watch. And in general, they're going to want to be able to add at least 20% on top of whatever they pay for the watch. They're also accepting a certain level of hazard, as for example, here at Watchbox, if a watch doesn't have documented service records and it's over 10 years old, we pretty much assume we're going to have to put a few hundred dollars into at least a cleaning, oiling, and adjustment. So that factors into our pricing. 
And we need to offer a two-year warranty on that watch after we sell it, which means we're on the hook if a watch running at low amplitude or timing poorly gets into a customer's hand. So we have downstream costs as well as upfront costs. All of that needs to be taken into account. But if you buy a watch that's used, you pay market value, you take care of that watch, you should have absolutely no trouble getting market value for that watch. It should not be worth substantially less when you sell it. And it might even be worth a little bit more. A good example of that would be something like a Piaget Polo S, which was almost roundly lambasted when it first came out. Those have found fancy in favor, as people have realized they represent good value in the integrated bracelet steel sports watch marketplace. Uh, another watch that I've seen rebound, it used to be that when you bought a roughly $12,000 Chopard Alpine Eagle, that became a watch worth 65 cents on the dollar through a lot of 2019 and 2020. Well, now they're creeping back up to the point that you'll have a lot of trouble finding one of those for less than retail, even as a used watch. So these are examples of how some watches um, that initially take a depreciation hit can actually gain a little bit over time. And that's important to keep in mind. Now, another misperception, or we'll call it a myth, that needs to be busted is this notion of rarity. And most watch collectors understand intrinsically that even luxury watches generally are mass-produced. And this is not something that the general public understands well. When you see journalists writing about Rolex, for example, and I've seen this, literally, the exact words, the Rolex Daytona, one of the rarest watches in the world. Well, no, it's not. It's an expensive watch. It's a hard watch to find new at retail, but it is not objectively rare. Just as modern V10 Lamborghinis are not rare, but they are expensive, the Rolex Daytona is a mass-produced watch, and tens of thousands of them get made every year. So rarity does not always correspond to value. For example, if you want to buy a Grubel Forcey double tourbillon 30 degree used, even in precious metal, you could pay about $250,000. Well, that watch new costs $430,000 minimum. Grubel Forcey only made about a few dozen of those per year each year it's been in business because across all of their model lines, Grubel Forcey make between 100 and 150 watches a year, and they have since 2004. So a Grubel Forcey double tourbillon 30 degree is a very rare watch, but it takes a huge depreciation hit in spite of that rarity. A Rolex Daytona is not a rare watch. As a new Daytona that retails for $13,150 could sell for up to $45,000 pre-owned. And we're talking just a few days out of the dealer's case. Do not confuse appreciation or markups with actual rarity. Same goes for something like a Patek Philippe 5711. Now, thousands of these are in existence, possibly even tens of thousands, as the 5711 was in production from 2006 through 2021. Now, there were many versions, yellow gold, Rose gold, stainless steel. They even made a platinum model twice. So there are thousands of 5711s, and there's no objective reason why this roughly $35,000 new watch should sell for $150,000, $500,000, over a million dollars in steel. Rarity is not one of its traits. 
it is only scarce relative to demand. And few independent watch brands see markups as nutty as those of Richard Mille. The RM11, in all of its forms, is a fairly common watch. Kerry Voudelinen makes a few dozen pieces per year. Laurent Ferrier makes just under 200. Debetun makes between 200 and 220. And F.P. Journe makes between 900 and 1,000. Richard Mille makes between 5,000 and 6,000 watches per year, most of which are distributed across popular model lines such as the RM11 and the RM67, which is to say, after 21 years of Richard Mille watch production, there are quite a few RMs out there. And if you're looking at popular models like the 11, the 67, the 5, the 10, you're going to run into quite a few available. There is no there is no shortage in the sense that we're running out of them, but it's the fashion factor that makes them dear, that makes the markups sometimes oppressive. It is not an outright scarcity of them, as there are far scarcer brands that trade at far less a premium and see far smaller waiting lists if you want to buy them new. You can go in right now and buy a JLC Torbion with no wait. Only a few dozen examples of any given JLC Torbion watch will be made each year. You can go in and buy a Chagere Lecoult Duomet Chronograph with no wait. Keep in mind that though JLC makes over 100,000 watches a year, any given version of the Duomet is only going to be made in a few hundred copies each year. And yet, you can buy a Duomet chronograph used in rose or yellow gold for under 30 grand. You can walk into a dealer and buy one new with no wait. You might even get a little bit of a discount. So that's rarity. Don't confuse markups with rarity. Now, hand craftsmanship. This is another myth. It's often claimed that luxury watches are handcrafted. And for the most part, that's not true. If you look at the highest volume brands that are undoubtedly luxury, Rolex, Breitling, Omega, Longines, none of these watches are handmade. You could argue that some Omegas, such as the Tourbillon watches, and some Rolex, such as the Gemset models, are handcrafted, these are brands that make hundreds of thousands of watches per year. And the only element of Rolex watchmaking that is always manual is the placement of the movement inside the case. And then the servicing is done by hand when the watch goes back to a regional service center. But everything else is mechanical. Now, you may say, okay, these are big brands. They're making hundreds of thousands of watches per year. Tim, you're not really surprising me there. But you may be surprised that there's also a great deal of mechanized watchmaking at the Langas, at the FP Journes, at the Patek Philippe's of the world. Now, at Patek Philippe, the high complications and the craft art pieces, the metier d'art, they're always going to be handmade to a point. On watches like the 5208, you're going to find that bridges, for example, are still going to be fabricated by various means from CNC to electrospark erosion before being hand-finished. And, and that's also true for F.P. Journe timepieces. If you go into F.P. Journe's factory, you will find that CNC, that is basically computer-guided drill bits, and electrospark erosion, which use uh, powerful voltage differentials to cut 
basic shapes. Those are used on almost all the watches to create the basic materials that go into the movement. Now, after that, there is some room for hand finishing, but even there, you're going to see a lot of automation. At both F.P. Journe and Patek Philippe, most of the initial beveling is done mechanically, and then you will have some hand finishing, generally with a uh, basically a drill bit that's been converted to have a sort of cotton buffer or fabric buffer on the end. And that's where you'll see a lot of the mechanical uh, milling lines buffed out into a polished shine. Actual full manual beveling is extremely scarce, and you'll know it when you see it. You'll see it on the bridges of watches from Romagotier, from Philippe Dufour, from Lang und Heine, those kind of brands. You'll see it at Chronometry Fernand Bertou or Grubel Forsy. These are the brands that are making dozens or maybe a hundred watches per year where you do have a lot more room for hand craftsmanship. But now we're stepping down into that Grubel Forsy volume of production. And this goes for Ferdinand Bertou as well. You're going to find that most of the watches, even there, require electrospark erosion and CNC milling to get the basic parts, the raw parts, ready for finishing. So in 2019, Grubel Forsy launched a watch called the Handmade One. And it's a tourbillon watch that's manual wind. And its selling point is that its entire fabrication is done by hand using the kind of tools that would have been available to watchmakers in the 18th and 19th century. Now, if it's news to you that Grubel Forsy watches aren't entirely handmade, don't feel bad. You shouldn't be surprised. There's an expectation that when a company makes only a few dozen or less than a dozen of any given model per year, that these will be entirely hand-finished and handmade watches. But that's not how it works. Grubel Forsy can only make two to three examples of the handmade one each year, because if we truly go back to an era of manual lathes and hobbing machines and die-cutting jigs, you find that that really is all that's possible. You get down to a Philippe Dufour-like level, where even a man working full-time with these types of tools and techniques is at best only going to put out about 12 watches a year. And you see that with others like Ludovic Balois, who's able to put out about a dozen watches a year. Between the upside down and the halftime, he makes 12 watches each year to order, and he does everything down to the engraving of the case back. So hand craftsmanship from big brands is going to be exceptionally rare, limited to craft arts like enameling, engraving, guilloche, miniature painting, marquetry, and gem setting. And then even at ultra boutique brands, you are going to see very few truly handcrafted watches. And in general, that will be a selling point, as with anything Dufour does or the Grubel Forcey handmade one. They'll generally lead with the fact that they only use traditional techniques. And if you're familiar with the Naissance d'une Montre product, which is a collaboration between Grubel Forcey and Philippe Dufour, Vianney Halter, and others in the industry to teach traditional techniques, these truly manual 18th and 19th century techniques are the techniques being preserved. Now, another myth is that smart watches are going to decimate the luxury watch landscape. And first, 
I point to the evidence. Eight years since the Apple Watch this summer, luxury watches have not been decimated by smartwatches. Whereas eight years after the 1969 Seiko 35SQ, luxury, or I should say all mechanical watches, luxury and entry level, had been decimated by quartz. So this is, this is enough time that I can look back and say my theories from 2014 were all correct. Although cheap watches, generally those below $2,000 and especially those below $1,000, have been decimated by smartwatches. Luxury timepieces that are designed to be serviced continuously and kept for life have not been harmed by smartwatches. And you would be amazed how many people jumped on the bandwagon back in 2014. Elmer Mock, who along with Jacques Muller was one of the two inventors of the original Swatch watch. Elmer Mock went out in 2014 after the Apple Watch was announced and he said this is going to decimate the watch industry. Well, I had my answers to his theory back then, and we may as well review them because most of them have been borne out. There is a very big difference between the kind of mechanical watch that was being sold in the late 60s when everyone needed a mechanical watch, not just luxury buyers, but anyone who owned a watch owned a mechanical watch. So there was room for a cheap quartz watch to move in and destroy companies whose main business was providing sub $100 mechanical watches. Any company selling a pin lever or Roskopf movement that was designed to last for a few years and then be thrown away, all those companies were dissolved, and the, the quartz watch destroyed them. And there was a period, as with that original Seiko 35SQ, which cost $1,250 US dollars, uh, through the Hamilton Pulsar precious metal LED watches, and including watches like the Rolex 5100 Texan and the Oyster Quartz series, there was a period in the 70s when high luxury quartz was terrifying to manufacturers of luxury mechanical watches. Well, high luxury quartz would later just become a niche. And while there would always be Patek Philippe and Cartier and Audemars Piguet quartz watches through the uh, 80s and 90s, the mechanical luxury watch really consolidated its appeal and its position in the market during the 80s and witnessed a huge 30-year resurgence starting in the 80s that continued through the 2010s and arguably continues to this day. So what we saw initially with quartz was that aside from a brief dalliance with the idea of luxury quartz, it mostly just blew away the cheap mechanical watches. So fast forward to 2014 and I'm a popular man. But fast forward to 2014 and the arrival of the Apple Watch and many, many emulators like the Summit from Mont Blanc and the Carrera Connected from Tag Heuer. Uh, we have not seen a smartwatch conquest of the luxury space, mostly because a smartwatch can't offer what people want from a luxury timepiece. People want permanence, something that's not disposable. They want something that offers a measure of exclusivity and exoticism. And that's not possible when you're owning a product that every teen working part-time at TCBY has on his wrist. 
they want something that is an alternative to disposable throwaway culture. Every phone, every smartwatch, every tablet and laptop you've ever owned goes in the waste bin and gets parted out in south coastal China. Well, the smartwatch can't offer you all of those enduring elements of appeal. It can count your steps and time your sleep, but it's not an heirloom you can hand down to your kid. It's not something you can give to a graduate to mark a momentous milestone. So the smartwatch was never really a threat, although I still hear people, even in 2022, asking me what I think smartwatches are going to mean for luxury watches, and in a nutshell, nothing. But if you want to elaborate a little bit, there has been an absolute collapse of the $300 to $500 Swiss watch market. It is absolutely true that Swiss watches priced in the same range as Apple watches have been destroyed. That market is effectively dead. But that's not to say cheap fashion watches have collapsed as we still have cheap fashion watches from the likes of Filippo Loretti and Daniel Wellington and MVMT, which are made in the Far East, we still see those selling well. And if anything, I look at them as a promising sign for the future that young people will get used to the idea of wearing a watch, something that largely dissolved among young people who didn't want luxury in the 80s and 90s. Well, today, when everyone can tell the time with his phone, we're seeing more and more young people put a watch on their wrist. Uh, first, it's going to be a fashion watch, but down the line, oftentimes, it is a luxury watch, which means that we're not going to see any impact of smart watches on luxury watches. Not now, not ever. And that brings me to another myth, which is that young people don't love watches. I hear this constantly on internet forums and in watch club meetups, where people, most of whom are Gen X and millennial, are wringing their hands over the imminent destruction of the luxury watch industry because kids just want phones. Well, first of all, I find that profoundly ironic. First, because we heard the same refrain from older collectors, boomers and like silent generation types in the 80s and 90s, the young people weren't going to want watches and that the traditional industry would die. Well, I don't see any justification for that. First, if you look at the landscape of watches on social media, sure, there are some older dudes like William Messina and James Dowling who routinely post to their social media, and they're part of the ecosystem of Facebook and Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, uh, Twitter, YouTube. They're out there, definitely. But for the most part, social media, the watch scene on social media, it's younger guys. If you look at the most active personalities in the wristwatch space, if you look at some of the more establishment media like myself on YouTube with, with Watchbox as a vendor behind me, or you look at the publications like a blog to watch or Hodinkee, well, Hodinkee is Ben Clymer and everyone at Hodinkee is more or less a millennial. You look at a blog to watch Ariel Adams is an older millennial. He's like a zennial, but everyone who works for him is like in their 20s and 30s. And then you've got me and my crew here at Watchbox Studios, and I'm the oldest person in the room at 37 years old. The influencers on Instagram and TikTok are even younger. 
And if these people can't yet afford watches, nevertheless, they seem to have an endless attention span for them. I've spoken to boutique hands, people who work in our Govberg boutique in central Philadelphia, where they gripe about kids who just come in all day long to try on watches that they can't buy. Well, that's a great sign because Philadelphia is a college town. And I don't know if, if you're familiar with this term college town. If you're not from the United States, it usually refers to a town where you have a bunch of institutions of higher learning and a huge sort of transient population of kids who come through to take classes at all those schools. So we're kind of like Boston and Houston and, and L.A. Uh, L.A. is a big city, big enough that it doesn't feel like a college town, but they've definitely got a, a school presence. Here in Philadelphia and Boston, we're just overwhelmed by the sheer number of college students, and they jump from boutique to boutique in the city trying on watches. In New York, I hear the same thing from boutique hands. All these kids come up, they want to try every watch in the shop, and we have to treat them with non-prejudicial you know, fairness and assume that any of them might have the money to buy, but they never do. Guys, that is a great sign for the health of the hobby. They don't have money today, but let me be honest. I was that same guy jumping from brand boutique to brand boutique, wearing out my welcome at Tourneau and Cellini and Vempe once upon a time, and I would go on to spend stupid money on watches. Those kids are out there, and the kids are all right. So no, we're not going to have some sort of catastrophic dearth of watch enthusiasts when the boomers age out of the market. It's just not the case. The next generation is alive and well. And if anything, I'm made to feel almost old as people who are in generation Z are starting to look at watches and buy their first Tissot PRX or Mito Ocean Star or even a fashion watch that will eventually get replaced with a mechanical watch. There is absolutely no problem there. And if you could see the faces of all the people liking content on Twitter and following on Facebook and Instagram, you would realize just how young the watch enthusiast scene is now. That may not universally be the owner scene, but enthusiasm precedes ownership. Okay, another myth is that car branding just makes sense. Car co-branding, that because watch collectors and car collectors and enthusiasts are almost always coincident. Really, it's an overlapping interest, and it's like 90%. I rarely see a guy driving a vintage Jaguar E-Type who's not into watches, and I rarely see a guy wearing a 60s Rolex Daytona who wouldn't be equally interested in that E-Type. And it's, it's true. Across every interest level and every category of watch or car, there is some mutual interest. But while it may be true that there's a lot of overlap, car co-branding a watch is almost always a loser. I can tell you, having worked in the watch industry now for eight years, having seen the pre-owned inventory here at Watchbox, having seen the inventory at a lot of other pre-owned vendors, and seen what brands were trying to dump to the wholesale market, it's almost always, you know, the aftermarket wholesale market, um, it's almost always Blancpain L Evolution Lamborghini co-branded watches. It's almost always Ball for BMW watches. It's almost always going to be 
Aston Martin-branded Tag Heuers or Ferrari-branded Panerai. If you look at the resale value of something like a Panerai Ferrari versus just your bedrock Panerai PAM 111 or 104, a mainstream Panerai watch, you're always going to be able to sell the standard Panerai Luminor for more money and more quickly than something like a Panerai Ferrari Gran Turismo or Scuderia. They're just dogs. It is the rare car branded watch that sells quickly. And here we are now almost 30 years after Luca de Montezemolo and Gerard Perigo decided that they were going to jointly develop watches. It's almost 30 years since Ferrari and GP paired up that these watches are starting to show a pulse in the marketplace, mostly because people love that era of Ferrari, but also because the watches were generally subtle. Luigi Macaluso and DeMontes Molo created watches that were classically beautiful, that happened to have Ferraris and Ferrari branding generally on the back of the watch. And that's about as close to desirable as a co-branded watch gets. Breitling for Bentley. There's a reason why one of the first things Georges Kern did when he arrived at Breitling in 2017 was lay the groundwork to phase out the dedicated Breitling for Bentley watch collection. Again, having seen a lot of watches dumped to the gray market over the years at other vendors, one of the most commonly dumped Breitling sub-brands was the Four Bentley collection. You would see them from the likes of Joma Shop and um, Ashford, and you, they would turn up online on Chrono24 and eBay, and you just realize that this was some authorized dealer or brand boutique trying to get rid of watches that they could not easily move. And that was even during the 2000s when Breitling's bigger and better approach to making watches was actually in fashion. The Bentley was still the weakest. So Georges Kern, who is a pretty lucid guy, he's got an ego, but he's earned the right to have an ego. He stepped into Breitling and he said, look, we need fewer quartz watches. We need smaller watches. We need to look more deeply at our heritage and reissue our best vintage pieces. And we need to limit the number of Bentley branded products. And so what he did was he decided that there would be a few discreetly Bentley co-branded watches and that they would be variations on existing model lines like the Premier rather than a standalone model line that was tough to move. So there has been abundant evidence that simply putting a car brand on your watch is not good business. Those ball for BMW watches, look, every BMW owner I've ever known is into watches. And every watch owner I've ever known would at least consider a BMW M car. But those ball for BMW watches were impossible to sell. And if someone offers one to Watchbox, we're going to have to be brutally honest with the person about what we think we can get on the open market and what we can afford to offer as a wholesale pre-owned price. Take a look at the hot potato treatment of Aston Martin. Now, as brands go, Aston Martin is probably up there with Maserati, one step below the likes of Porsche, Ferrari. I mean, truly, a, an august and impressive name. Aston Martin, the David Brown era by itself is the stuff of legend. Multiple GT class winners at Le Mans, 
overall winners with Carroll Shelby in 1959, the car of James Bond through multiple eras of Bond, Aston Martin is pretty much as good as it gets. But JLC spent 10 years with a genuinely good faith attempt to build an Aston Martin co-branded watch in the Amvox collection. So instead of a lazy rebrand of an existing model, they went out and they created landmark designs like the Amvox 2, discreetly co-branded, useful, functional sports watches like the Amvox 1 Alarm, and attractive, again, appealing mainstream complications like world-time chronographs with the Amvox 5. They went high horology and designed an exclusive ceramic model in the form of the Amvox 3 GMT tourbillon. So everything from an entry-level alarm to a high horology tourbillon GMT with an innovative pusherless chronograph in the Amvox 2 and Amvox 5 mixed in. And these watches were like nothing else in the JLC catalog. And most of the time, the, a the Aston Martin branding was very subtle. You wouldn't know unless you knew where to look for it. And again, these watches are just hard to move. They were watches that found their way to the aftermarket when dealers, including brand boutiques, couldn't sell them. The collection was discontinued after 2014, and yet I consider I continued to see them in JLC brand boutiques in 2016, 17, 18, 19, still unsold. Aston Martin, as good a brand as it is, jumped to Tag Heuer. And in 2018, we learned all about the Tag Heuer collaboration with Aston Martin and how this was going to be a longstanding uh, partnership between two brands that saw eye to eye and, and, you know, professed to have common values and appeal to a common collector. And then three years later, Aston Martin was with Gerard Perrigo. So since 2014, Aston Martin, as good a brand as any in the car space, has teamed up with three different watch brands. Third time's the charm. Good luck, Gerard Perrigo. Also, the idea that ceramic cases are more delicate than a snowflake in hell. Ceramic cases, for the most part, are wonderfully durable. And the answer to the age-old question of how you keep your beautifully finished luxury watch from becoming disfigured within the first week of ownership. Banisters on stairways, car seatbelt buckles, door frames and doorknobs. The world is a minefield for your royal oak. For me, the no-brainer solution is a royal oak in ceramic, and indeed that exists. But there's also Gerard Perregaux, Chagère Lecoult, Panerai, IWC, entry-level models. You have many choices. You can buy a ceramic watch for a few hundred dollars. You can buy a ceramic watch for six figures. But a lot of people will never, ever test the waters because they've been convinced by pissy online forum posts that ceramic watches make about as much sense as glass bumpers on a bumper car. Ceramic watches are no more vulnerable than the sapphire crystal we find on every luxury watch today. And I can tell you in confidence that if you're not the type to chip, crack, or shatter a sapphire crystal, you're going to have no trouble with ceramic watches. The problem is that people go online, they Google 
their favorite brand ceramic watch and broken case, and someone on a forum who probably did something stupid but now has an axe to grind and generally wants something for free from the manufacturer, he's going to go online and complain that his fragile ceramic watch shattered as he was stretching and getting out of bed, or that he was just jogging along and his lugs cracked, or that he was having tea with a good old friend at a restaurant in New York, and all of a sudden, apropos of nothing, the watch fell off his wrist and hit the ground. In most cases, people did something that's just bonehead stupid. They dropped the watch, which I've seen a million times with metal watches, only it generally just means a broken crystal or a damaged movement. With a ceramic watch, it's usually a case fracture. Cases in ceramic from major brands are no more vulnerable than a sapphire crystal. So if you're that rare customer, like NASA, who wants a shatterproof thermoplastic crystal because you know you're going to need it, by all means, avoid ceramic cases. But if you want a watch that's not going to scratch, not going to chip, not going to ding dent, if you want to buy a used watch that you know for a fact has never been refinished, Go for ceramic. You won't regret it. It's really just going to come down to whether you want a watch that's feather light on your wrist and whether you like the look of the ceramic as a case material. Unless you're stupidly abusive with your watches, do not worry about the durability. Now, finally, we have this notion that there is a holy trinity of luxury watch brands, and it's Patek Philippe, Audemars Piguet, and Vacheron. But we also understand that there are a lot of other really great watches. There are watches made by Parmigiani. Take any one of the eight-day calibers. Take the Tonda Croner, Cronor Anniversaire, the Cronor Anniversaire, with its dozens of interior angles on a movement made of skeletonized 18-carat rose gold. Take Parmigiani's Hebdomadaire, or eight-day movements. Uh, take the Pantograph, take Long und Heine, take a Long und Zona, take Credor from Grand Seiko, take Chronometry Ferdinand Bertou from Chopard or Chopard Louis Ulysse Chopard. There are so many brands that make something that is as good as or better than any option you'll find from a mainstream Vacheron Patek or Audemars Piguet watch. We need to really retire that idea of a holy trinity on a qualitative basis. Because if you go out and buy a Keaton Mayrick manual wind American built watch, the quality that you get on those bevels, the quality you get on those bridges, on those screws, it's going to be a whole lot better than if you go out and buy a Vacheron with a 2460 automatic in-house Geneva seal caliber. If you go out and buy basically the same type of watch Merrick makes based on a 6498 and you buy it from the likes of Pascal Coyon in France, you're going to find that the Pascal Coyon chronometer has more beautiful detail work than a Patek caliber 324. If you look at a Patek 324's beveling underneath a 10 power loop, you can make out the milling marks. Oh, sure, they'll hand finish it, generally, like I said, with a little cotton buffer on a drill tip, but you'll be able to see that that piece was initially milled. And of course, there are a lot of independents, like Aaron Beche out of Hungary, like 
Molnar Fabri, the incredible skeletonization and engraving they do, like Marco Long, now that he's working solo, the quality of what you get from these independents is so much higher than what any mainstream brand can offer on a mainstream watch. Now, if you do go out and buy a Patek Philippe 5207, or you go out and you buy something from the Cabinotier collection at Vacheron, or you purchase an Alango Unzerne Handwerkskunst model, you're going to find that the finish there is as good as anything in the world, including any of the independents. But let's not kid ourselves. In an era when independent watchmaking is everywhere in the haute de gamme segment, and it seems like we add six more super high-end manufacturers, basically one-man shops every single year, we can't talk about a holy trinity the way we could in the 20th century when the best thing going in 1950 in terms of finish and innovation and exclusivity truly was Patek Vacheron and Audemars Piguet. Watches they made in that era are legendary for a reason and auction results support that. But today there are simply too many guys or small groups of guys and gals, shout out to you Eva Loiba, who are making incredible stuff that is just finished at a level a mass manufacturer cannot match. And we have new mass manufacturers that did not exist back in the mid-20th century. Again, Louis-Ulysse Chopard watches that are certified both Calité Fleurier and Geneva Seal at the same time. We have Parmigiani Fleurier. We have high horology watches from Glasuta Original that were created basically out of the ashes of communism, the Glasuta Urenbetriebe, the GUB of the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, became the company that launched the Julius Osman 1, 2, 3, and 4 in the 90s and the 2000s. These are watches on a level of fine finishing as good as anything Patek has ever managed, even though we generally don't think of Glasuta Original as that kind of a brand, check out the Pano Retrograph, and it puts the 5070 and the 5970 to shame from the same time period. There are companies out there like Crador that didn't exist in their current form prior to 2000. Remember, back in 2000, Seiko and Grand Seiko created the Micro Artist Studio. They went to the Valet de Jeu. They went to Geneva. They learned from the best. And they brought back the finest techniques from Philippe Dufour himself, who helped them set up their methodology. You cannot say that something like a Crador H or H2, Grand Sonnerie or Minute Repeater, is any less worthy of holy status than something from Patek, Vacheron, or AP. Divinity is not a Swiss monopoly. It's very much alive and well in the Far East. So that's what I think of this notion of a holy trinity. And that's before we even discuss Alangu Unzona. Now, they're not making 60,000 watches a year like AP and Patek, but they are making five to 6,000 watches a year. And even today, we're seeing between 900 and 1,000 watches a year from FP Journe. It's no longer the small shop of the early 2000s. FP makes quite a few watches. So all of this needs to be taken into account when talking about holy trinities. For me, that expression is a shorthand for a period in time. We're referring to watches made by a specific set of manufacturers. We're not referring to a monopoly on quality, which they no longer have.
That's not to put down what they make. It's just to say that there are many more rivals and companies like the GUB that were never even on the map, companies like Chopard that once didn't make movements of their own, they have now caught up in full. Guys, thank you so much for joining me on this myth-busting edition of the Tim Masso podcast. We're going to be coming back with some major industry figures and a return to the interview series very soon. So be sure to check back. And remember, follow me on Instagram at Tim underscore Masso for a steady stream of my one-minute reviews and on YouTube at Watchbox Studios and Watchbox Reviews. Time out, Tim out, and thanks for logging on.